0: I am exceptionally excited to be talking for the next few minutes with author Andre Czerny, uh, an editor for the idea journal Democracy and uh, the author of an extraordinary new book about an extraordinary moment of the 20th century. The book is called The Candy Bombers, and uh, you probably need to read the subtitle in order to know exactly what this story is about. The Untold Story of the Berlin Airlift and America's Finest Hour. In it, we hear of the besieged city of Berlin in 1948 and 1949 and of the incredible undertaking, an undertaking by the Americans to airlift much needed desperately needed supplies uh, into that uh, uh, besieged, blockaded city. It is an incredible story inspiring, and uh, there are also d- darker <laughs> shadows to the story, a very complicated story, which in the end helps us appreciate all the more that this uh, undertaking was accomplished as well as it was. And uh, we have um, Andre Cherny with us for the next few minutes to talk about his book, again called The Candy Bombers. Andre Cherny we welcome you to the morning show.
1: Well, good morning to you and, and all your listeners.
0: I think it is especially intriguing that you uh... End the title of the book america's finest hour and you actually speak quite persuasively in the book about how uh, in many respects you consider this to be a sort of summit moment for uh, america tell us more about what you mean
1: well as you describe this is really the, perhaps the moment of greatest unalloyed goodness in american history uh, here was the German people who we had, of course, defeated in a, in a very bitter conflict, World War II, a few years later. And we took this enormous undertaking to basically feed and supply uh, the residents of, of Hitler's capital to make sure that they were able to, to live uh, and, and not starve to death. Uh, that is uh, the kind of thing that America perhaps only in in the world, of of the nations of the world, can do. And and this was really a representation of what America should be about in the world.
0: Hmm. You said it was a turning point in the nation's history, the moment America came to fully accept the mantle of leader of the free world. But it was more than that. It was the moment when America became beloved by the very people it had defeated in battle and whose cities it had leveled and was revered, by people around the world who look to the United States as a source of decency and good. You also say that although this is a story of America at her best, those are your words, you say it is by no means a simple story or a straight line. Tell us why this is a more complicated story than we might uh, at first recall or believe.
1: Well, sometimes these things get reduced to a a sentence or a paragraph and in high school history books, or even many of the other histories of, of this era that have been written. But uh, it, was of course, was, was not a simple story, and in, in my estimation, that makes it uh, something even more inspiring. This was a, a decision that was a very difficult decision. When the, Berlin was blockaded, of course, this was an island of western Berlin that was surrounded by Soviet territory, and American forces were hopelessly outnumbered, 60 to 1. And the decision had to be made about what would happen. The main general on the ground thought we should send an armed convoy through the blockade, something that people then thought, and and we now know, looking at Soviet archives, we would have begun World War III. In fact, most of the advisors in Harry Truman's administration, his top generals and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or his top cabinet officials, thought we should abandon Berlin. And the decision to make the berlin airlift was something we really fell into backwards we thought let's send a few planes over into berlin to try to augment their supplies in a small way and that those few planes stretched out for a couple of days and then we did it for a couple of weeks and then months and eventually we were able to do it for a whole year but uh, it was not something that we went into knowing really what we were doing and all these people in the book whether they're people like harry truman whether they're uh, people who are unknown today uh, they're, they're complicated characters, and they make their mistakes in, in the book, as, as the readers will see. But in some ways, as I said before, that's what makes it so inspiring, because they weren't these great people we put on a pedestal. Uh, they were human just like the rest of us, and yet they figured out uh, how to, at that moment that it mattered most, combine America's military and its moral might uh, in a way that had people all over the world believing that America was the country they should emulate and admire. Mm.
0: You list in the introduction to the book some of the pivotal figures, beginning with this accidental president, uh, Harry Truman, uh, James Forrestal, Secretary of Defense, uh, Bill Tunner, a military organizer, uh, Lucius Clay, a a general uh, stationed in Berlin, and uh, the most famous of the pilots, Hal Halverson. You said it was these unlikely men, who improvised and stumbled their way into inventing a uniquely American approach to the world. That, to echo what you just said, married the nation's military and moral might. I mean, it's interesting when we hear terms like improvising and stumbling uh, to to describe something which ultimately was a great success. Sounds Uh, familiar. (laughs) It sure does, doesn't it? You begin your book. The first chapter is called The Bank's. And I think some people will be, I I think, pleasantly surprised as I was that in a book about the Berlin airlift, you actually begin your book in the spring of 1945. Uh, explain to our listeners why this section of the book is called the banks.
1: Well, the bank. The book is div- divided up into uh, three sections, and each have a, a river kind of theme: the, the the banks, and then there's the bend, and at the end there's the bridge. But This book is called The Banks because it starts off right at the River Elbe, which is the dividing river between Germany west and east. And that was the place that Soviet and American troops linked up at the very, very end of World War II. The Soviets, of course, coming from the east, battling back the Nazi forces, the American troops coming from the west, from D-Day and Normandy onwards. And this was the moment that these two great armies uh, met, and they met in a spirit of great friendship.
0: But you say the war was not yet over, and the bliss on the Elbe was premature. And, of course, it was probably premature in more than one respect. I mean, not only was World War II actually not officially concluded, but you're probably also alluding to the fact that the Americans and Soviets would very soon find themselves very seriously at odds with one another.
1: As this occupation of Germany d- developed and Germany was divided four ways with each of the big powers of World War II uh, getting its part. Uh, these these uh, countries were, were pushing up against one another, especially the United States and the Soviet Union. And they, of course, had different visions of the world. The Soviets started one after another uh, toppling the governments of Eastern Europe, Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and the rest. And all that took place between the end of world war 2 and when this uh, events that are mostly described in this book begin in 1948 and of course west berlin was the next piece of free territory as the soviet threat in the minds of many americans was was heading west uh and they thought if if we don't take a stand there if we let berlin fall then germany will be next and soon after will be france and in italy and in the same way that hitler had captured all of europe the soviets will do the very same
0: hmm. In this portion of the book, you talk for a a while at some length about President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, of course, is is soon to die, uh, and his attitudes towards Germany and what he believed had been the great mistake at the end of World War I. And his attitude is contrary to that which we hear from many historians and analysts, that the big problem at the end of World War I was that Germany was economically brought to its knees and out of that savage period of difficulty arose all this anger and resentment which eventually blossomed into the Third Reich and so on. Franklin Roosevelt believed a very different sort of mistake had been made uh, regarding the Allies and and Germany. Uh, Explain what his attitude was.
1: Well, it was really not just his attitude but the attitude of a lot of Americans that they believed we had not been harsh enough. Uh, they believed that we had uh, let the Soviets let, let the Germans off easy, and there was a big debate heading into the occupation of Germany, and even in the first years of the occupation of Germany, about how do we how do we change a country? It's it's a debate that has some resonance for us today, of course, in our current circumstances. But how do you change a country? How do you bring democracy to a country? There was a sense that there was, as Roosevelt put it, a cancer at the very heart of the German people, at the heart of their culture that made them susceptible to Nazism and and other forms of authoritarianism. There there was the Prussian influence and uh, things like that 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 made them very martial and and made them believe that uh, democracy and freedom were not the right way to go. And in American uh, powers, in American uh, officials, among American officials, there was this big discussion about do we get rid of this cancer through harshness or do we do it by uh, economic incentives, by helping the German people succeed economically? And I think that it turned out that that neither was was really the right answer, that what we eventually did was by the spirit of kindness that we showed in the the Berlin Airlift.
0: Hmm. Yeah, Roosevelt, you quote him as saying that uh, Germany would be best taught the ways of democracy at the point of a gun, and at another point you quote him as saying, if I had my way, I would keep Germany in a breadline for the next 25 years. In other words, he was really concerned about Germany uh, rising up again in a, yet another repeat of this uh, pattern of violence. As it is, however, in, in the waning days of his life, uh, you paint a picture of President Roosevelt as being... Uh, utterly, really incapable of of formulating far-reaching policy, and in a sense, his vision for what should be done uh, with Germany uh, is not fulfilled at all. And uh, it really falls uh, to his successor, President Truman, to ultimately shape the way in which we, we we treated Germany.
1: That that's right. You know, we of course hear a lot about in the wake of Iraq about the fact that we had planned for the war but not planned for the peace and something similar happened in World War II. There had not been a great deal of planning about what would happen once we actually took over this enormous country in the heart of Europe. The, uh, the initiative to do that had, had been in Franklin Roosevelt's hands, and he didn't want anybody else really taking that away from him. So he, he kept that responsibility for himself, didn't really delegate it to anybody else. But in those last, years of his life, or in those last months especially, he was a dying man. He was really able to work only uh, a few hours a day, maybe even a couple hours a day on, on some days, was was tired, his heart was, was failing him, and really because of that, the entire administration was, was paralyzed, was unable to make some basic decisions about how we were going to treat Germany after we had occupied it. And so, of course, that decision then fell to, as you said. Harry Truman, and also to the general on the ground who, was the, who became the military governor of, of Germany, uh, General Lucius Clay. Hmm.
0: We, should, we don't have much time, but you should just talk, I think, briefly about his fascinating career, the fact that he was this general who actually spent so much of World War II behind a desk. And yet we read with great admiration about what probably the the really crucial difference he made in our war effort, and then ultimately a a great difference which he made in this whole situation in Berlin.
1: You you read off a list of the the main characters in the the book earlier, and one of the things that unites them, and and I think is, is very true for what you just said about General Clay, is that in some ways these were all people who were seen as history's second stringers, in the same way that Harry Truman was seen as a pale imitation of Franklin Roosevelt, especially when he was there and was was seen as somebody who was not equal to the task. You had General Clay coming in after the great heroes of World War II, people like Eisenhower and Omar Bradley and General Marshall and, and others, and he was seen as really somebody who was n- not equal to the task. He had never faced combat, had, had been really desiring to be getting into the battles of World War II and had because of his enormous organizational abilities been kept on the war front first being in charge of the supply of the american forces everything from pairs of pants to tanks that were needed to keep an army going and then was in charge of uh, making sure that things uh, in the united states were were running during wartime as well in our own economy and he was then given the responsibility for uh, running germany and nobody thought that anything involving military strategy would be involved or involving diplomacy he was given the task because they thought it was uh, really going to be just a an, a job of, of being an administrator being a bureaucrat
0: and he was a good one
1: and he was a great one but in fact he had to use skills that nobody ever thought he had and that most people thought he didn't have uh, it, when it counted most at this very sensitive crisis the closest we ever came to world war three perhaps more so than even the uh... cuban missile crisis
0: hmm. And I, I, that's an interesting characterization of, of those sort of second stringers of history uh, for whom ticker tape parades are not given and yet who figure so prominently, who in many cases make the crucial difference. We're speaking with Andre Cherny about his book, The Candy Bombers. I want to read uh, a very striking portion of the book in which you describe Berlin at the end of World War II, not since the pinnacle of Rome, had one city ruled over so much of Europe. Never, not even when Rome was pillaged by barbarians, had a city fallen from such heights so quickly. And when Berlin's invaders came, it was not a civilization that was destroyed, but civilization itself, or at least its crude veneer that vanished. Speak a moment more about Berlin at this moment in time just ahead of the blockade, which of course plunges it into even further difficulty.
1: It's, it's hard to remember, but as you said, you know, Berlin was one of the great cities of the world. It was an area, at least, the largest city in the world. And its uh, people in the years before World War II began were among the most sophisticated. You had great artists and scientists like Albert Einstein living there, great place of culture and technology, more telephones there than any place else in the world. And The successive bombing of American planes and British planes and then the Soviet invasion, the Russian invasion, all but leveled the city. Seventy-five percent of its uh, housing was uninhabitable. It was, when you looked at it, really just a a city of a a few kind of stubs of buildings left over, basically pockmarking a sea of, of debris. Uh, You had wolves roaming the street. It had become the the crime capital of the world. Murders and robberies were uh, very prevalent. And for the three years before the Berlin blockade, people were just barely surviving, ration levels way below what the United Nations said was necessary to prevent starvation. Uh, People were really just trying to have the most meager of existence. And that was why everybody, both the Soviets as well as the Americans, thought that once that Berlin blockade went into place, the people of Berlin would quickly fold. They would return to their authoritarian roots that we talked about before. They would turn themselves over to the communists just so that they would not even fall into more more despair. But one of the great uh, parts of this story and why the airlift was so important was that it inspired them to keep going. Hmm. And they took a stand against communism and for their own freedom, they demanded that they wouldn't have more food, which they would have had if the blockade had ended, that they would keep on being hungry in order to hold on to that measure of freedom that had been so hardly and so difficultly won for them.
0: Hmm. I learned a lot in this book. One moment that I had never read about before was what occurred on uh, July 20th of 1945. This was when uh, President Truman went to the American sector, uh, of Berlin to officially raise the American flag in conquest over the German capital in a very brief ceremony, which, of course, could have been handled in any number of ways, and it could have unmistakably conveyed the uh, the message of <laughs> "You have lost, and we are victorious." Uh, but the words that President Truman chose to speak on th- on that occasion conveyed something else and 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 were a, a source of hope. Uh, for those Germans who heard some of what he said. Uh, Do you want me to just read a portion of that? Sure, please. Um, Truman spoke without note, saying that they were there to raise the flag of victory over the capital of our greatest adversary, but we are not fighting for conquest. There is not one piece of territory or one thing of a monetary nature that we want out of this war. We want peace and prosperity for the world as a whole. We want to see the time come when we can do the things in peace that we have been able to do in war. Uh, That had to give great hope to the citizens of Berlin that, uh, that those kind of words were spoken in that moment by the conqueror to the conquered, so to speak.
1: Well, it was, and it was really a summation about the kind of faith that Americans had gone into the war with, they had been told by Franklin Roosevelt, and, and they, they believed that this was a very different kind of war, one, about expanding justice in the world and about expanding a sense of hope and, and prosperity for people all over the world. And that was the, the, the kind of fighting faith of America during World War II. Is, it was that vision that people like Roosevelt and, and Woodrow Wilson had had before him and that Harry Truman was was inheriting.
0: Mm. Of course, the situation begins to change dramatically as the Soviets begin exerting greater and greater influence, begin uh, what ultimately leads to a full-fledged blockade uh, trapping, in effect, the citizens of Berlin, isolating them from the rest of the world, uh, a tiny little dot in the midst of all kinds of territory which the Soviets had gained control over, and thus began the need for what became this airlift. I think for a lot of people of, for instance, this current generation looking back, they would not immediately understand what an incredibly difficult operation this was. I mean, it seems like a simple thing fly some airplanes over a city and just drop things down. Uh, explain why this was such an exquisitely difficult undertaking.
1: Well, as I said before, this was the, one of the largest cities in the world. And in the years after World War II, we had basically just decimated the American army uh, and all our military strength. It was, of course, the years of bring the boys home, and we did. And we really just took apart the, the enormous army we had constructed to win World War II. We had literally blown up planes on the runways in Europe in order to save money so we wouldn't have to cart them up and bring them at home and put them in airplane graveyards the planes that were necessary the kind of cargo planes that we needed we had only about 200 in the entire air force fleet in the, in the world and these were not the kinds of planes we see today these were small rickety planes basically about the size of a school bus uh, and with this with these few small planes we were able to not only feed the city for a a year uh, feed feed them the millions of people there but bring all the supplies that were needed to maintain their existence, the coal, uh, every piece of clothing they needed, medicine, and so on. Uh, It's that kind of can-do spirit that I think so uh, inspired people. You look at, of course, what happened a couple years ago in, in New Orleans, and there was an American city, and we couldn't even bring supplies there. We couldn't even help the people there that needed help in that same way. This was 60 years ago, a very different world, with a very different set of resources, and yet we were able to do that because we had that kind of of, of kind of spirit and, and that kind of leadership.
0: Hmm. One limitation to us was this primitive airport, Tempelhof, uh, utilized in, in, in the early, uh, early days of this uh, airlift. Uh, tell us about that.
1: It was... Uh, the building itself was one of the largest buildings in the world. Uh, in fact, way into the 1970s, Uh, It was still the largest building in the world until, uh, or it was one of the largest buildings in the world. Uh, By the 1970s, it was the third largest. Uh, The only buildings that were larger were the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And it was situated right in the middle of Berlin. And the approach to it, however, was incredibly difficult. Uh, A pilot had to navigate past a a smokestack on their left side and on their right side a six-story apartment building. And it was, the runways were so short that they had to come in at an incredibly uh, tight angle to clear both the apartment building and yet have enough room on the runway to land. <laughs> and so it, made it made it even more difficult.
0: And one of your, the pilots was quoted as saying, when you landed on these primitive runways, it felt like a crop duster was landing in a, you know, in a cornfield. I mean, that's, that's the, the kind of the rough ride.
1: Oh, sure. Wh- and, and a lot of these pilots, of course, have been the bombers during World War Two, and uh, a few of them would always remark about how they wish they had dropped a couple bombs on an apartment building back when they were bombing the rest of Berlin so Have right. kind of an easier time of it. Yeah.
0: Um, you, your, your book explains some of the uh, fascinating logistical details about what, what, what was needed to make all of this work so well. You said it demanded constant creativity and improvisation every minute on the clock had to be part of the calculation. Every pound loaded onto these planes and exactly what kind of materials. I mean, this was not just about throwing boxes on a plane and flying them in. I mean, this became a highly sophisticated operation.
1: Well, it it had to be. It was uh, uh, by the time that things really got underway there, a plane was landing and taking on every three minutes. Uh, So it was just a constant roar and in order to make sure that you got enough supplies in, you had to be very careful about how you loaded up those planes. You could fill up the uh, room on a plane with uh, pasta or something lightweight like that, and you'd waste a lot of space, or you could fill it up with bags of coal and you'd be too heavy. So you had to combine loads in order to get the optimum amount on each plane and make sure that it was still flyable. And uh, it was an enormous logistical undertaking. Uh, Really, the uh, one of the reasons people thought it couldn't work was because nobody could really figure it out. The one person in the world who thought that it could work was, in fact, the person they eventually put in charge of the uh, airlift, Bill Tunner, who you mentioned earlier. And he was this logistical genius uh, who was able to finally figure out how do you turn this operation into something that was haphazard and fly by the seat of your pants uh, into something that was just an enormous assembly line.
0: The public face of this airlift uh, was this uh, kind-hearted and courageous American pilot by the name of Hal Halverson, who had an interesting moment of truth. Briefly describe that to our listeners when he realized that there could be something else that could be part of this airlift that might make a tremendous difference for the children of
1: Berlin. He was uh, where we get the title of the book, The Candy Bombers, from. He was an anonymous 27-year-old pilot. Uh, we mentioned him earlier before. And as I was saying, this was such a rigidly regimented operation. He'd always been a stickler for the rules, uh, uh, somebody, uh, uh, somebody who had made his career by always doing the right thing and was uh, very much that mindset. But he, by accident, met some children along the fence of Tempelhof Airport, which we were just talking about, and he promised them on a the spur of the moment that he would drop them some candy These were, of course, the children, five, six, seven years old, whose only experience of America had been the country that had bombed them during the war and then occupied them in the years afterwards. And most of them at that age had never tasted chocolate before, never tasted a stick of gum or a piece of candy, had lived in this really terrible existence. And he said he would have dropped some candy from his plane as he went over. This was, of course, very much against the rules. Uh, And yet he secretly did so. He tied some Hershey bars and Wrigley's gum to a handkerchief and dropped it out of his plane. He did it again, and he kept on doing it a few more times, and eventually the word got out, and thousands of Berlin children would show up at the airport to try to get one of these little handkerchief parachutes, and they started calling him the Candy Bomber. And this was the moment, really, that these children then fell in love with America, uh, believed in in us uh, us as a nation. went home and convinced their parents of it, and it marked the turning point in in the entire occupation.
0: Hmm. I had the great privilege of meeting uh, a priest and musician uh, who lives now in uh, uh, Hamburg, who remembers that airlift so vividly as a young young man, and uh, ever since has worked tirelessly to forge friendship between Americans and Germans, in his case, through music, by bringing his young musicians from his school over to America and welcoming American musicians uh, to his country. And of course, this uh, friend, acquaintance of mine, Pater Anselm, is just one in a sea of Germans who must have been so powerfully affected by this moment in history.
1: Well, Hal Halverson, we were just discussing, he was 27 at the time, and now 60 years later, on this 60th anniversary, he's 87 years old, he... Still has more energy than you and me combined, and still flies his own plane. And he uh, goes back to Germany a few times a year. I went back with him on one of his trips, and it was just amazing to see people in their 60s, uh, 65, 66, uh, who had been, of course, the children that had had gotten the candy from the airlift, or who had otherwise been saved by the airlift. And they would come up to him with with tears in their eyes uh, and tell him about what that little gesture meant to them in their lives, how it had inspired them, how it had given their hope, and how it really marked a sea change in how they viewed themselves in their really just horrible existence in, in Berlin. The idea that somewhere out there people believed in them, cared about them, they knew that people from all over America were sending in candy uh, to, to be part of this effort, and uh, it, it really changed their view of, of themselves, and it, of course, changed their view of America. and the, the dividends and, and the ripples of history are still being felt today. Hmm.
0: The book again is called The Candy Bombers The Untold Story of the Berlin Airlift in America's Finest Hour, uh, published by G.P. Putnam's Sons, the author Andre Cherney. Mr. Cherney, I thank you so much for writing this wonderful book.
1: Thank you for having me on board.
2: That's Christopher Gavigan. Please go ahead. Good morning. Good morning, it's Christopher.
0: Good. Looking forward to talking to you. Thanks, Christopher. We we'll begin in three, two, one. For the next few minutes, we, uh, uh, finish out the morning show by speaking with Christopher Gavigan, who for many years has dedicated himself to the cause of trying to make families and children and in particular safe in the world from, uh, essentially the, the contamination or the, the, the way in which the toxins around us in, in, in our environment, uh, can, can be so detrimental, uh. He has a, a, a guide called Healthy Child, Healthy World, Creating a Cleaner, Greener, Safer Home, which might be a very, very uh, uh, a profound benefit to, to you and your family. He heads up a, a nonprofit foundation called Healthy Child, Healthy World, which also serves this very same cause. Christopher Gavigan, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, ahead of uh, digging into some of the specifics in your guide, I wonder if you could just talk for a moment about one thing which I think has a lot of people worried, namely that all kinds of people, businessmen, et cetera, are sort of climbing aboard this environmental bandwagon at the moment, and some of them uh, with with better... Resources than others, mm-hmm. and this whole phenomenon of greenwashing of yeah. putting the picture of a pine tree on, on the label of your product and calling it uh, environmentally safe when in fact it might it might not be. Um, I wonder if uh, how serious a problem you think that is, and uh, uh,
1: I,
2: I I certainly think it's a concern. I think it's a very good point to bring up, and I think as as consumers come into a marketplace and you you're finding a lot more green products which is fantastic because a lot of those companies do have good intentions but as you said a lot of the companies also are doing it just because it's trendy or it's a market opportunity and i think this is i i hope that this is a movement that can can people can understand that it's not only about about the things you buy it's not only green consumerism it's about the things you don't buy, and it's how you express your values. and but when uh, in the choices that you're making, when you do have to buy. and um and in this book, we talk about how to become a better label reader, how to understand what people are talking about, and some of the specific phraseology that is being brought to the marketplace. And then we have an incredible resource section that vets a lot of these companies and said and says, and promotes and talks about the people that are doing the good work um because people need to understand that uh it's powerful when you're supporting a company that uh has their environmental and um a, a lot of their morals aligned to uh their their consumers you come to this as
0: a, a former science teacher i think yes. and uh and it's of course important that one brings a good dose of scientific know-how and caution to To this whole area, and particularly right. when it comes to, to making decisions or making sweeping statements about what is good and not good for people to be doing.
2: You're absolutely right. And, and as an organization, this nonprofit organization has existed for almost 20 years. In doing just that is working with the scientists, working with the researchers and the thinkers and the health experts and really collecting that data and then disseminating it and translating it into um, actual layman-speak. I I mean, I've read tons of white papers, and they're absolutely mind-numbing. And uh, the average person can't be held accountable for understanding that type of language. So what we've done with this book is really translate it and brought it to you in a way that's palatable and understandable. Hmm. I know that uh, among the
0: things that uh, a reader will find in, in your guide... Five key, easy steps to a greener home. Mm-hmm. Tell us about those five steps.
2: Well, these are steps that I, I, the, the concept of R is if you start with these five things, then you're going to start gaining momentum and, and uh, understanding a lot of other things because everything is interconnected in your home and the products that you bring in are um, do affect your health. The environment is not somewhere out there. So these five steps, the number one thing is avoiding pesticides and insecticides whenever possible. These are very Nasty chemicals um, are known to be quite harmful and detrimental and linked to some severe health ailments. And they have skull and crossbones and danger and warning on the label for a reason, is because they are quite dangerous to your health, not only the the health of bugs. And so, um, what we talk about are there are some non toxic solutions and opportunities in, in the marketplace, but also in your daily behaviors, putting screens on your windows, caulking holes being attentive to the perimeter of your home, making sure you don't have food and making sure you're cleanly so the ants and the other critters aren't attracted to these things, um, using non-toxic cleaning products, products that are conventionally based typically have synthetic fertile, excuse me, synthetic, uh, fragrances and preservatives and dyes and additives, and the non-toxic varieties which are available everywhere and that aren't that much more expensive Um are are known to be healthier and safer for us. Cleaning up indoor air, it, it sounds like an action that takes a lot of work, but just by opening up your door, you're really doing a lot. Letting fresh air into the home and flushing out some of the stale air that's been in your home, the the air in the home, is, is, by the EPA standards, one of the top five environmental crisis because we spend 90% of our time indoors. So f- fresh air is a very healthy thing. Um, eating more organic foods. Organic foods are, uh, are a good thing. You're supporting some great farmers and great people doing good work and uh, in, in old methods and getting their hands dirty and in the soil, but it's also organic foods aren't sprayed with pesticides and synthetic fertilizers aren't used to grow them. And so organic is typically also more nutritionally healthy for you. And so um, organic foods are an important thing we talk about and trying to eat as much as you can in that arena and then uh, being wise with the use of plastics. There are a lot of studies out right now talking about plastics, and, and it's a big national discussion, specifically with baby bottles and water bottles, and uh, they're ubiquitous in our life, and we have to live with plastic, but we have to also be smart with the types of plastic we're using, and in the book we talk about the types of plastics and uh, what, or what are safer and what are best to avoid. You
0: touched briefly on the matter of cost in uh, one of those items, and and it and it probably figures in in a fair amount of this kind of thing, Mm -hmm. and certainly once upon a time to make some of these choices meant you know actually sharply more expensive products. Uh, Is that changing? Is it becoming a little more in line with uh, with otherwise the standard products with which we're more familiar?
2: It is, and it's become a, more, a much more competitive marketplace. And so I think as these uh, you know, environmentally sense, sensible companies are growing and, and able to reduce their margins and they're able to compete with the bigger companies and, um, and gaining a, a stronger consumer base, they are becoming more in line. It's an exciting time in the marketplace. It's interesting to watch. It's interesting to see who's adapting and who's sticking to their old ways and who's falling off and but uh, cost is always a consideration in everyone's lifestyle and um we're very aware of people's budgets and we, so we try uh to to make a, a attentive uh recommendations in those arenas that are um going to keep your pocketbook intact as best as possible
0: uh, i'd like you to explain one thing that might uh strike uh our listeners as is quite uh, a curious thing The fact that when you talk about uh, going organic, you spoke uh, 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 just a minute or two ago about uh, eating organic foods, but I understand that in the guide you talk about going organic, choosing organic in things besides food, uh, which is kind of an interesting way to use the term. Can you uh, explain a little further about uh, a more far-reaching way in which we can think about going organic?
2: I think organic, I think the word organic, like the word green, is gaining this concept of of being more attentive to the lifestyle choices you have. And there are organic cleaning products, for instance. there's organic beauty care out there right now. and um, the the products that we're bringing into our homes and we're putting on our bodies, for instance, the beauty care component. Typically, the average American who wakes up, gets out of the shower, is putting over 260 synthetic chemicals on his or her body just before they walk out the door in the morning. And so these are many chemicals untested um, for their health effects on humans, let alone children. And so what we talk about is is being attentive to products that you're putting in and around your body and you're using in and around your lifestyle and embracing um, a more natural and organic Type of uh, methodology. What is it about children uh, where you think
0: we need to be especially attentive in these matters? I mean, are children especially vulnerable, and and if so, how
2: or they why? Are. Children are more vulnerable because uh, you know they enter the world and they're still developing, they're still growing, and rapidly developing, really until the age of five or and six. And their immunity system, when they're very young, is still yet um, completely formed. They have less of an ability to detoxify. So if there's an environmental trigger or exposure, they can't really cleanse their system as quickly and easily. And their behaviors, their behaviors, they're close to the floor. They're putting things in their mouth and pound for pound, they're eating twice as much as the average adult. They're drinking twice as much as the average adult. They're breathing twice as much as the average adult. And so if there are exposures in and around those arenas and it, they come into their body and their body is, is, um, is unable to detoxify it, then it's a, it's a more uh, critical of a situation. I mean, we're watching children, children's disease and illness rise to epidemic proportions asthma, learning disabilities, cancers, leukemia, autism, behavioral disorders, obesity, all very credible sciences linking these to environmental triggers. And so this book really talks about, okay, that is fact. Now let's do something about it. Let's not be rendered um, quiet and, and ignore the situation. Let's actually do something and change small behaviors in our daily lives that can have a bigger impact on, on our children and family's health.
0: This guide is called Healthy Child, Healthy World, Creating a Cleaner, Greener, Safer Home. Is there a website also where people can seek out some of this information?
2: Yes, the nonprofit website is healthychild.org, an incredible, robust uh, website for everyone. Uh, Again, healthychild.org. And then the book is available um, online, and you can also find it um, through that website as well.
0: Christopher Gavigan, we thank you very
2: much. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye.